Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 12. I have a couple of goals this morning, and I think it would be helpful to give them to you at the outset. My first goal is no different than any other week in handling this passage. No different from any other week. My first goal is that we would understand the text. What is Colossians 2, 8 through 12 telling us? What does Paul mean? As Paul is writing, inspired by the Holy Spirit, what does God mean in Colossians 2, 8 through 12? And today that will mean understanding the fullness that we have in Christ. So that's what we're looking at. This passage is describing the fullness that Christians have in Jesus Christ. So that's number one goal is to understand how the text is saying that. And then secondly, I would like to focus specifically, if you want to look now at verses 11 and 12. I'm going to focus specifically on verses 11 and 12 and take a close look at the link or connection in verses 11 and 12 between baptism and circumcision. The close link between circumcision and baptism in verses 11 and 12. And I want to take a really close look at that connection. And this is why. Since the 16th century, Christians have been divided over the meaning of these two verses, Colossians 2, 11 and 12. And their disagreement over the meaning of these two verses has led to two very different practices in the church today of baptism. You've probably heard of these views and heard of these practices. The two views are paedo-baptism, Pado, Greek word meaning child. People who hold this view practice infant baptism. So, pedo baptism means the baptism of infants. And some see that in Colossians 2 11 through 12 by the connection of circumcision and baptism. Talk about that. The other view is credo baptist. Credo, from a Latin word meaning belief. People who hold this view practice the baptism of believers or disciples alone. That is what we practice here at Veritas Church. We do not baptize infants. We baptize believers. We baptize disciples alone. But let me be clear, Gospel-believing, Bible-believing Christians have historically seen baptism differently, especially since the 1500s. And personally, I have found that I often have more in common theologically with Paedo-Baptists than I do with Credo-Baptists, save of course our view on baptism. But I've often found that I have more in common theologically with people who are baptizing infants now and historically, often than I have in common with Baptists who are baptizing only believers or disciples. But of course, there's disagreement over 
the practice of baptism. In fact, many of my heroes, many of my heroes dead and alive, so I have heroes that are alive and I have heroes that are dead. I'm sure you do too. And honestly, many of my heroes, I thought about this, I, I, I almost thought I could say most, and I might be able to say that, but at the very least, many of my heroes, dead and alive, are or were infant baptizers. Many of my heroes. Now I am convinced that those pedo-baptists who have died and are in heaven and now have perfect theology are no longer pedo-baptists. But we'll see. So we as a church, Veritas Church, we as a church, and I'm referring, when I say this first, we as a church, and I'm referring here to our published doctrinal statements, we are credo-baptists, not pedo-baptists. But, we as a church, referring now to the people who make up our church family. Some who though they are not members of this church, we would consider a part of our family here. In that sense, we as a church are Pado-Baptist and Credo-Baptist. Worshiping together here on Sunday. So I think it would be good in light of that to look closely in the second half of this sermon at verses 11-12. through 12. And these two verses in particular, because these two verses, listen... Colossians 2, 11 through 12 are typically two very important verses that biblically responsible Pado Baptists turn to to defend their baptizing of infants. So, Colossians 2, 11 through 12, we're looking closely at that in the second half of the sermon. Those are two very big verses in the arsenal of Pado baptists historically. So I don't want to gloss over that. They would use these verses to defend their practice of baptizing infants born to Christian parents. So we're going to look at that today, and I need to warn you, it is complicated. Hey, some passages of Scripture no matter where you come down with them, are complicated. Amen? And these two verses are complicated. So you will need to, if you don't usually, you will need to put your thinking caps on today. You cannot afford to unplug even for a moment. So two goals. Number one, that we would understand what the text is saying. And then number two, to look closely at verses 11 through 12 and what they have to say about the connection between circumcision and baptism. But before I preach this sermon, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, help me to preach well and to preach in a biblically accurate way and in a way that is helpful for your people here and brings you glory and honor through truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So first, before we get to verses 11 and 12, let's look at the verses leading up to them. Verses 8 through 10 of Colossians chapter 2. Verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. See to it, Paul says, that no one takes you captive. Watch out. 
This is a warning. Make sure that no one kidnaps you spiritually. That's what the word means. Make sure no one kidnaps you spiritually. Well, how could that happen, Paul? How could I get kidnapped spiritually? And he says, by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Paul is saying, you Colossian Christians, Veritas Christians, you are who you are today because you have believed the Gospel truth brought to you by good teachers, whoever they were. You are who you are today because good Gospel truth was brought to you by good teachers. But today, there are people among the Colossians there were, and even among us today, today there are teachers among you, Paul is saying, nice, respectable men who are not Teaching truth. That's what Paul is saying. What are they teaching? Philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Philosophy here probably means an understanding of reality. There are lots of different philosophies today that would be different understandings of reality. Explains why things are the way they are, and consequently, how you should think and live accordingly. This is how things are. This is why things are the way they are. And this is how you should think and how you should live in light of that. And Paul says the philosophy of these teachers is deceptive and empty. It sounds good, but it's not. It's deceptive. It promises fullness, but leaves you empty. Matthew Henry said, There is a philosophy which is vain and deceitful, which is prejudicial to religion and sets up the wisdom of man in competition with the wisdom of God. And while it pleases men's fancies, ruins their faith. There are wrong philosophies. There is false teaching. You may have heard the sound bites in the last couple of weeks that are going all over the place saying that you should worship God and you should do good for your own self. That's deceptive and it's empty ultimately. So today, how do we, 21st century Californians, how do we weed through the various philosophies which life foundational sort of philosophies are empty and deceptive. And here's the answer. Every single one that is not according to Christ. That's Paul's answer. These things are empty, deceptive, and they are not, he says it negatively, these philosophies at the end of verse 8 are not according to Christ. So if you've got a philosophy, if you've got a teaching, something that you like, that you're listening to, Promises this, promises that. You need to ask yourself, is it according to Christ? So don't be kidnapped by this, Paul is saying. So imagine walking in the middle of the night. You're by yourself. You are in the dark. You're not in a good part of town. And all of a sudden, a 
van drives up next to you and screeches to a halt. The back doors of the van swing open. Windows are boarded up. And three men jump out and are running for you. Here's what Paul is saying. Spiritually speaking, the van with the boarded up windows is philosophy and empty deceit according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So don't get in the van. We've got to see it. Spot it. Verses 9 and 10. Paul goes on to say, For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. So Paul says first in verse 9, there is no fullness in the philosophies of these teachers. So he's comparing. What is the philosophies of these teachers is the opposite of fullness. What is it? Empty, he said. So there's no fullness in the philosophies of these teachers. It is empty. The fullness is in Him, Paul says. And who is the Him? Jesus Christ. The Colossians would have understood this fullness language better than we do. Paul is clearly throughout this book using terms that were familiar to them and were most likely used by the false teachers. Gnostics of the day, for example, spoke of a fullness which could be attained if you had and understood special knowledge. They would say, if you have that, you will experience fullness. You will be full. Or to use modern language, you'll be content. You'll be made whole. You'll be satisfied. You'll be at peace. The opposite of empty. Everybody wants that. Everybody wants to be full in that sense and doesn't want to feel hollow or empty. So Paul's saying their teaching will lead you to emptiness. Fullness is in Christ. So Paul is saying, number one in verse 9, Look, Paul is saying in verse 9 that in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells. That could be a whole sermon, right? In Jesus, what does he say about him? The whole fullness of deity dwells. In other words, all that God is, is in Christ. Because Christ is God. And so Christ is full. There's nothing lacking in Jesus. And then second in verse 10, Paul brings us into that. Paul is saying that you, Colossian Christians, and us, we can apply this to ourselves as Christians, you are in Christ, so if you are in Christ, therefore you are full. You're not empty, you're full. So he's saying, do not be taken captive by this teaching that promises to fill you because it will leave you empty and you're already full. You see, that's what he's saying in 8 through 10. Don't listen to this philosophy. You don't need it. In the end, it will lead you to being empty. And hey, Christian, you're already full because you're in Christ in whom all the fullness of deity dwells. So, Christian, for us, this means do not look for anything other than Christ. Do not look to be filled, to be satisfied, made whole, completed by worldly, self-flattering, nice-sounding, demonic 
Which is what Paul means when he says according to the elemental spirits of the world. But it sounds nice. It's self-flattering, but it's Christ demoting. And Paul is saying, do not listen to it because it is empty and because you're already full. Jesus plus nothing. Fullness in Christ alone and emptiness is in everything else. So there's our verses leading up to our difficult two verses of 11 and 12. But what about the verses following? Let's look at those briefly, verses 13 through 15. Next week, that is the sermon text, so we will spend much more time. But this morning, we need, if we're going to understand verses 11 and 12, we need to see how they collaborate with 11 and 12 to describe the fullness we have in Christ. That's what's happening. Verses 8 through 10, Paul is saying, hey, listen, don't listen to that teaching. It's empty and you're already full in Christ. And now, here's how you're full in Christ. Verses 11 through 15. It's his elaboration on the fullness we have in Christ. So listen, if you don't feel full in Christ, read these verses. Understand these verses. They're good medicine for your soul when you don't feel full in Christ. And here's what we have. We will see that Paul declares that God has done four things to save us. He mentions four of them here. Two things done outside of us and two things done inside of us. So first, let's look at what Paul says that God has done outside of us, before us, historically. We find the first one in verse 14. By canceling, talking about Jesus, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this He set aside, nailing it to the cross. So here's the first thing Paul says God has done outside of us historically to save us. According to verse 14, God canceled the record of debt that stood against us by nailing it to the cross. Now we will, because we should, spend more time on this next week, but here's what Paul is saying in verse 14. We have all offended God by breaking His law over and over and over again. And so, there is for us all a record of debt against each one of us which leaves all of us without excuse before a just judge. So imagine pages and pages and pages and pages and pages with very small font that is a record of your sin. It is a record of your debt to God. And here's what Paul is saying in verse 14. Christian, when Christ died in His body, your sin, that record of debt, was nailed to the cross. So for the Christian, where is that record of condemning debt right now? And the answer is, it has been in the body of Christ nailed to the cross. That's amazing to think about. It's, it's gone. It is nailed to the cross. It was 
paid for on the cross. Listen, everybody's debts get paid for. Right? Everybody's debts get paid for. Everyone's sins get paid for. The question is, where will your sins be paid for? And all sins are paid for in one of two places, right? Sin is either paid for in hell or on the cross. And that's it. But it's never overlooked. It is all paid for. Either in hell or on the cross. There's something else Paul tells us that God did historically. And we find it in verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. So according to verse 15, God disarmed, shamed, and defeated. When it speaks of rulers and authorities, this speaks of Satan and his angels or his demons. Now the war wages on. If you're a Christian, you know this. Sometimes you feel like Satan hasn't been defeated or disarmed. Or... The war wages on, but the cross was the decisive victory in the war between God and Satan. So the war still wages on, but the decisive victory has been won, and it was won on the cross. So Satan, as you know, is not yet destroyed Though in the end, we sang about it today, one little word shall what? Fell him. And his doom is sure. Where did Martin Luther get that idea? He got it from 1 Corinthians 2, verse 6, which tells us that Satan and his demons are doomed to pass away. But they're not destroyed yet. Causing a lot of trouble. Causing great evil, of course, because he has been brought to open shame he was embarrassed before the universe. He's angry and evil, wicked, causing much trouble. Not yet destroyed, but he has been disarmed. He's been disarmed because the only weapon he really has is sin. Satan can't get anybody to hell. Sin gets you to hell. And the power of sin has been taken through the death of Jesus Christ. So there you have it. Two things God has done outside of us. He has nailed our record of debt to the cross. And He has defeated our enemy. And now look, Paul tells us of two things God has done inside of us to save us. First, look at verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. You see, these verses are a gold mine, aren't they? These are a gold mine of what it means to be full in Christ. According to verse 13, God has raised us from the dead. The Christian has been raised from the dead. Spiritually, we were dead, and now spiritually, we are alive. We were dead to God and alive to the world, and now we're dead to the world and we're alive to God. Spiritually, we were on the slab, we were unresponsive. Spiritually speaking. And then one day, God made you alive. And you are awakened to spiritual realities you never knew. How does the Bible speak of this? As being born again. We've been regenerated. We were made new creations. 
Now this brings us to verse 11. Where we see the second description of what God has done in us to save us, which helps us to understand the fullness we have in Christ. But this one's more difficult. Especially when we look, as we will shortly, at its connection to baptism. But let's read verse 11. What else has God done in us? How, how else do you want to describe to us, Paul, what God has done in us? In Him also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now I think what we have in verse 11, now listen, this is where we've really got to begin to think. I think what we have in verse 11 described as virtually the same thing as regeneration. Virtually the same thing as being born again. I think this second description here just focuses on a particular aspect of being born again. And here we have what the Bible calls in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, for example, Moses calls this a circumcision of the heart. So every Christian has been born again, and being born again includes what Moses called, what Paul calls, circumcision of the heart. Not a physical circumcision, but a spiritual circumcision. So very plainly speaking, let me summarize verses 11 and 12. Plainly speaking, when a Christian is born again, verse 11, something in a Christian's heart has been cut off. When a person becomes a Christian and is born again, something in their heart has been cut off, circumcised. Another way of saying this, Ezekiel 36 says it this way, a Christian has been given a new heart. A heart of stone is taken, a heart of flesh is given. And baptism, which we see in verse 12, is an expression or a sign or a symbol of this heart change. That's the summary that I'm offering. Let me say it again. When a Christian is born again, verse 11, something in a Christian's heart has been cut off. And baptism, verse 12, is the expression of this. It is the sign of this. It is the symbol of this. So let's look more closely. Let's read verse 11 again. Verse 11, In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. So Paul says verse first, in Him, in Christ, you were circumcised. I trust that we all understand what the act of circumcision is. Physical circumcision. And it is a cutting away of something. It is a cutting off. And in the second part of verse 11, Paul is telling you what has been cut off. What has been cut away? And it's not physical, is it? He's talking spiritual. A circumcision. What is the circumcision we've received? It happens without hands. you see that? He's not talking about what we might think of present day or even in the Old Testament. 
This circumcision happens no hands by putting off the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. The circumcision that Paul is speaking of is not physical. It is spiritual. With a circumcision, Paul says, made without hands. This is the cutting off that God does in every Christian. Paul calls it here the circumcision of Christ. Moses called it the circumcision of heart. It is spiritual. Without hands. And what does Paul say is cut off? What is cut off? The body of the flesh. What is cut away in the heart of a Christian? And Paul says the body of the flesh, which probably refers to our old self, In our old ways, controlled by sin, dominated by sin. So Paul is saying, verse 11, that when you become a Christian, the old you is cut off. For those of you who are biblically minded, does that sound right? Does that sound familiar? Does that sound consistent with Scripture? Paul is saying that when you became a Christian, the old you is cut off. Like 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, the old has passed away, the new has come. So the old you has been cut away, Christian. The unfaithful you. And what's left is the new you, the faithful you. The unfaithful you was self-reliant, self-asserting, self-promoting, self-believing, self-exalting, self-actualizing, me, me. That's unfaithful. The new you, that's been cut away, when you were circumcised at heart, when you were born again, and what's left is the new you, the faithful you. Replace all those selves with God. God relying, God asserting, God promoting, God loving, God believing, God exalting. So Paul is describing dramatically what has taken place in the Christian. The old you has been cut off, has been cut away. So according to verse 11, something else, that second thing that God has done in us to save us is that He has cut off the old you. Which brings us to verse 12. Where baptism is closely linked to circumcision. Now, this connection unplanned by me, but fitting because our baptism class is this afternoon. was not planned that way. And as I said before, it's also fitting because verses 11 through 12 would be used by some faithful, gospel-believing, paedo-baptist Christians that we have among us in our church. They would use this close link between circumcision and baptism to explain their practicing of infant baptism. Now, of course, let me say this, that we're going to talk about baptism now and believers' baptism. This, of course, is not the only text on baptism in the New Testament. There are many. This is just where our study in Colossians has us. Isn't a sermon on baptism interjected into our Colossians study? This is just where we're coming to in our study of Colossians. There's many other verses that we don't have time to get to that help us to come to our understanding of baptism. 
So first, let me help you understand, for those of you who may not be, what a paedo-baptist does with verses 11 through 12. How does one draw the conclusion from these two verses that we should baptize infants? Let me help you understand that if you don't already, and I hope I represent this well and fairly, a paedo-baptist sees a close connection between Old Testament circumcision and New Testament baptism. They see a close connection, as they should. Because there is a close connection, as we see right here in verses 11 and 12. In the Old Testament, you have the Old Covenant. And in the New Testament, through Christ, you have the New Covenant. All a part of God's covenant of grace. God's promise-based relationship with His people. That's called covenant. You have the Old Covenant. And you have the New Covenant. And the New Covenant is where it's all been leading to, is the fullest expression of the Old Covenant. But it's always been about grace and God saving us by His grace and by His mercy. So there is continuity between this Old Covenant and this New Covenant, right? It's always all of grace. There's other things that are similar. But there's also discontinuity in the New Covenant. Things shift in the New Covenant. Circumcision, baptism, these different signs are an example. So Pato Baptist, remember, get that cap on. Is it on tight? That thinking cap. Seeing the continuity of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant and the close connection between the sign of circumcision in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant sign of baptism has led... A paedo-baptist to infer, that's an important word, to infer that the subjects of the new covenant sign of baptism should be the same as the subjects of the old covenant sign of circumcision. Namely, the children of the covenant people of God or the children of Christians. We go a little further into that view. Here's how the argument goes. Baptism has replaced circumcision in the sense that it is the new covenant sign that marks off the people of God, which, by the way, I would agree with. So since baptism is the new covenant sign that marks off the people of God, and in that sense has replaced the old covenant sign that marked off the people of God, The new covenant sign that marks off the people of God is baptism. So, the Pado-Baptists would argue that baby boys born in to in the covenant parents in the Old Testament, right? Baby boys circumcised on the eighth day. Baby boys born to in the covenant parents in the Old Testament got the sign. And so, because baptism is clearly administered to men and women in the New Testament, baby boys and girls today born to in the covenant parents should get the sign. Sounds good, doesn't it? It must. Millions maybe of faithful Christians have subscribed to that. So children born to in-the-covenant parents in the Old Testament receive the sign of the covenant. So why wouldn't the children of new covenant parents receive the new sign of the covenant 
which is baptism. We don't just do it to boys anymore because clearly we have the example of men and women being baptized in... I've got to be careful. I'm going to convince all of you to change views. It makes sense at first. The Heidelberg Catechism, which probably expresses this view the best, which was written in 1563, in its 74th question asks, are infants to be baptized? And this is the answer given. Yes. For since they, as well as the adult, are included in the covenant and church of God, and since redemption from sin by the blood of Christ and the Holy Ghost, the author of faith is promised to them no less than to the adult. And let me pause and say with humility that I would profoundly disagree with that statement. They must therefore by baptism as a sign of the covenant, be also admitted into the Christian church and be distinguished from the children of unbelievers. Okay, with that, distinguished, as was done in the Old Covenant or Testament by circumcision, instead of which baptism is instituted in the New Covenant. Now, it is true. Let's, let's move on now. That's the view. Baptism and circumcision are closely connected and linked to one another in verses 11 and 12. We, can't, we shouldn't dispute that. It can't be denied. As we've seen, you have circumcision introduced in the beginning of verse 11 and then explained. And then in verse 12, you have baptism introduced and then explained. And they are closely connected here. And so a paedo-baptist looks at these verses, right? And says, see? See the connection here between circumcision and baptism? And we should say true. But here's the very important question. When you see baptism linked to circumcision in Colossians 2, 11, and 12, the question is, which circumcision is baptism being connected to? This is the question. Is it the physical Old Covenant circumcision or the spiritual New Covenant circumcision? Or another way of wording that question, is baptism here replacing Old Covenant circumcision because it's being connected to that physical circumcision? Or is baptism in these verses expressing New Covenant circumcision? That's the question you all have to answer. And your answer to that question will determine whether or not you are a Pado-Baptist or a Credo-Baptist. Well, do you remember how we just answered this question of which circumcision is being talked about in verse 11 when we just looked closely at verse 11? What is this circumcision being described in verse 11 which baptism is connected to? Paul is, I would say, not saying in verses 11-12 through 12 that baptism is connected to Old Covenant circumcision. Paul is saying that baptism is expressing New Covenant circumcision. Baptism here is not proposed as the New Testament counterpart to Old Testament circumcision. And that's what's subscribed to by many. Okay, here you have it. New Testament baptism is the New Testament counterpart to circumcision in the Old Testament. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that spiritual circumcision is the New Testament counterpart to 
Old Testament circumcision. You're no longer circumcised in that way. What has replaced that circumcision? And Paul is saying heart circumcision. It's what Moses was talking about in Deuteronomy 30. It was the prophecy of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. That's the new covenant those biblical authors were talking about. There's a heart circumcision coming. So understand the differences. In the Old Testament, think about circumcision. It was a physical sign given to all Jewish boys signifying their belonging to the covenant people of God. And while that is no longer practiced, Paul here describes its New Testament counterpart. And it is not physical circumcision. It is heart circumcision. Let me say that another way. Under the Old Covenant, the people of God were the Jews, the nation of Israel. You could become a part of those people, but God's covenant people was a family. It was an ethnic people. It was the nation of Israel. And therefore, all Jews received the sign of covenant membership. Circumcision. The focus in the Old Testament is ethnic Israel. The focus in the New Covenant is not an ethnic people, but a spiritual people. This is very clear in the New Testament. The focus is no longer an ethnic people, but a spiritual people. Not a nation, but a church of all nations. And spiritual birth is now the pathway into covenant membership, not physical birth. Physical birth was the pathway into the covenant people of God. Now, spiritual birth is the pathway into the covenant people of God. That gets the sign. Not physical birth into the people of God. So the parallel made in verses 11-12 is spiritual circumcision and baptism. Not physical circumcision and baptism. Baptism is a sign of heart circumcision or regeneration. Being born again. It symbolizes that. It expresses that. It dramatizes that. Baptism is an external expression of the Colossians 2.11 spiritual circumcision, not the Genesis 17 physical circumcision. Now I want you to just think about all the verses and commands and examples of baptism in the New Testament and see if it doesn't support that. Therefore, here's where we get credo-baptist. Therefore, the only biblical subjects, the only appropriate biblical subjects of baptism are those who have been circumcised in heart. Those who have been born again. Those who have, been, who have placed their faith in Christ. Therefore, infants cannot be qualified for baptism. That's our view. Now remember, we're just looking at these two verses. So tempting to take another hour and look at all the other verses. Never mind the fact Never mind the fact that the clear command of Scripture 
is the baptism of disciples alone. And never mind the fact that the clear example of Scripture is the baptism of disciples alone. In fact, a paedo-baptist would even agree with this. That's indisputable that the clear command is baptizing those who put their faith in Christ. And the clear example is those who place their faith in Christ being baptized. A paedo-baptist would not disagree that as the clear command and clear example in Scripture, but they then would assert that good and necessary inferences must be made resulting in the practice of infant baptism to which I would humbly disagree. Baptism is an outward expression that I have died. I have been buried in the tomb of the water. And I've been raised again. Isn't that the baptism that is explained in verse 12? Let's read verse 12 again. And ask yourself, as we read this verse about baptism, verse 12, ask yourself, are infants who have not placed their faith in Christ eligible for this baptism? Just ask that question. When we read verse 12, are infants who have not placed their faith in Christ, are they eligible for this baptism? Having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. Let me read those two verses again. Ask yourself about this baptism. Is an infant who has not placed their faith in Christ eligible for this baptism? Verse 11, In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism. And here's the key phrase. In which... What's the which? Connect that word to what it's in place of. Okay, teachers, help us. The which is baptism, right? The which is baptism, having been buried with him in baptism, in which, in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. So just say that phrase a few times to yourself. In which? In baptism. Put the word baptism, because that's what the witch is talking about. In baptism, you were also raised with Him through faith. In baptism, you were also raised with Him through faith. In baptism, you were also raised with Him through faith. Cannot describe the baptism of an infant who is not capable of placing their faith yet in Christ? I would say no. John Piper says about this verse if baptism were merely a parallel of the Old Testament rite of circumcision, it would not have to happen through faith, since infants did not take on circumcision through faith. The reason the New Testament ordinance of baptism must be through faith is that it represents not the Old Testament external ritual, but the New Testament internal spiritual experience of the circumcision without hands. So in conclusion, so that we don't end on a 
dissertation on the differences between credo-baptism and pedo-baptism, not how I want to end a sermon. Though I hope it will be helpful. Friends, let's, let's take this together from these verses. Baptism is glorious. If we can build some anticipation and excitement for a baptism class today, for the baptisms that we're going to be a part of as a church in October, baptism is beautiful. Don't overlook this. Baptism is signifying that the New Testament people of God come into existence differently than the Old Testament people of God. It is no longer by birth, but by rebirth. And baptism is telling that story. It is not just a tradition. It is not just ritual. Not that a pedo-baptist would say that. But it is not just a ritual or a tradition. It is Christ's appointed way, an ordinance commanded by Christ to be carried on by the church. It is Christ's appointed way that the church should symbolize, express, signify, dramatize. It is Christ's appointed way that the church should signify God's salvation of His people as they pass from death to life. That they have been born again. Sins nailed to the cross. Hearts circumcised. Buried with Him. Raised with Him through faith. Expressing that. And so we baptize believers when they show by faith the evidence of regeneration. If you would like to know more about that, if you'd like to hear more about that, come to the baptism class today. We're going to talk about this glorious sacrament of baptism. And let me close by reading from Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. Paul says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism in death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. This is the fullness we have in Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You for these words that You've given us. and We ask that You would not let these words fall short of our heart. We pray that they would be helpful and encouraging and would be thought of and understood lovingly. We look forward to the baptisms we will see next month and the physical display before us of what You have done internally in Your people. We praise You and worship You because of things like this, because of who You are and what You've done. Be honored in the rest of our worship today. Together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.